Welcome to the Avenue Community Church's podcast. We are a family of Christ followers seeking shalom in Memphis. We pray that you are encouraged by today's message. And as you listen, may the word of God shape you to be more like him. As we come to the sixth and the seventh chapter of Micah, what you are essentially witnessing uh, in greater measure is a court proceeding, and uh, just because um, I think all of my lawyers may have been out of pocket, I had to solicit two principals. <laughs> but they did a great job, did they not? Um, so we have here before us Micah, the prophet, representing the plaintiff the God of the heavens and the earth. We have the mountains being literally solicited as witnesses. Hey, mountains, you stand, serve as witnesses, jurors to this case that I'm about to lay out against my own people. And the Lord proceeds. And I love what Warren led with is really this pleading. I'll read it to you one more time. Verse 3, my people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. Selah, right? What you see here is the picture not of a God who has a system who is so obsessed with the system that at complete disregard to the subjects, right? We we know that. We have been walking through pictures of injustice, abuse of power, um, people who um, are in charge, who have authority, who just use that, and they work their subjects without any regard to their well-being. This is not the picture that you see here in Micah 6. What have I done to you? This is not a God with a system, but a God who has a flock, a God who has a staff shepherd not just any kind of sheep, but people he loves. What have I done to you? This is a scorned lover. On my way over, I had to tap into the contemporary prophetess Mary J. Blige. <laughs> What's the name of the Wait Next Hell song? What's the name, baby? I'm not going to cry no more. This is essentially... I've cooked your food. Can I get a witness, somebody? This is, I've washed your clothes. And this is what you're going to do to me. This is not short-temperedness for the millionth time. This is not just fatigue of I'm tired of whatever. But this is a heart that has been broken. Okay, can I, let me just pause. I, I, I didn't do that as poetic and eloquent as I want to, but I'm just saying, once again, this is not short temper. This is not just exasperation. Some of y'all have been in places, been in situations where you're just tired of doing things over. I'm tired of telling you. I was talking to my homie Jay yesterday. He got some bucket-headed people who work for him. And he went over some pancakes. He was just telling me, PT, these mugs right here. And he just put his head down. He's like, bro, he shared a story with me. He was like, man, you know what? It's Friday. I sent somebody said, I, I need to take a break, boss. Okay, you go take you a break. They went on break at 4 o'clock and then had a stomach ache. He said, PT, I'm just tired of this, man. 
We got one hour left to go. We got one hour left to go. It's Friday. I want to go home too. Now you shortchanging everybody else, bro. I'm tired of it. But, it. but this is more than exasperation. This is a heart that has been broken. What have I done to you, my children? What have I done to you, my people? And just in case you needed to be reminded of what actually the Lord has done, he gives us a picture. He highlights this, these just a couple instances in Israel's history of all of his saving acts. I will let you look those up on your own time. But all this jazz about Balak, the king of Moab, and Shittim and Gilgal, all of these were monumental acts of God's saving power. He recounts those for you. What have I not done? Have I not been good enough? Essentially, is the question. Have I not done enough to show you my covenant faithfulness and loyalty? And so if this first section of chapter 3 begs Israel to remember God's display of his covenant love and faithfulness to you, then this sex, second section, verses 6 through 8, Asks Israel really to recall the simplicity of the commands. We know this. This is the part of Micah all of us know but don't have no context for. Can I say it one more time? I said, this is the part of Micah we all know but don't have no clue where it comes from. Okay, so let me put it in context. The Lord says, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Let's just pause real quick. This is just some exorbitant amount. He's speaking hyper, hyperbolically about some kind of a crazy amount of things and gifts that you could have brought before the Lord that really only a king or a ruler could have ever brought in. Because he's never asked them to do that. That's what verses 6 and 7 is about. I never asked you to do that. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? Have I ever asked you to do that? Have I ever asked you to offer the fruit of your body for the sin of your soul? Somebody need to put a little asterisk right there. Because I never asked you to do that. But I did it voluntarily. But verse 8, the one we know. But he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Essentially, this is this passage, before you even get to what it means to love justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God, let's just first not skip back the fact that God is not mad with Israel or Israel is not being punished uh, um, unfairly. This is fair. They know what to do. God has not asked them to do something crazy so far out of their reach. They will not be able to claim ignorance. God, we didn't know. No, that's not what this is. I'm reminded of Deuteronomy, I think it's 30, when it's like, is, was the word of the Lord so far in the depths of the sky and the sea that we had to go find it? This is not national treasure. That's one of my favorite movies. Anytime that mug come on on USA, TNT, I'm going to pull up. That's all the one, the only one they seem to want to show. National treasure, baby. And all the rush hours, we got all them. You ain't got to never rent rush hour not one day in your life. You don't even have to subscribe to a streaming service. Just wait on USA. They got you covered. And I'll be waiting on it every time. But this is not national treasure where we got to go and find a clue to find one piece of the law, and then we got to go and find another piece of the law, and then we can all put it together after an hour-long, week-long journey. That's not what God has ever asked any of us to do. It's so simple. 
But this is what is true for all of God's people throughout all of redemptive history, throughout all time. What God is asking all of us to do is so simply stated, but it is so difficult to practice. And when you read Micah 6, 8, and they ask you to preach on justice, and they ask you at your employee staff meeting, why don't you give us a devotion on justice? And you read from Micah 6, 8, and you start thinking about those people out there who just need to be better just. You better slow your roll, mister. You better slow your roll, sister. Because the same thing that was true for the Israelites is true of ourselves. It's so easy to state. It's so hard to practice. What is justice, PT? If y'all missed the justice talk um, earlier, um, I'm going to, uh, Gil's right there. <laughs> uh, seriously, if you missed the justice talk and you're like, oh, man, I, if there was ever a makeup or something and I would love to participate, Gil's going to write it down on the back of her thing, and we'll contact you if we got some more fun info. Um, but it was a good talk. We just gathered as a church. saying, man, what, what is, what, what, what? How have we experienced injustice? How do we feel about the injustices that we see? What does it look like for us to try to be able to respond in certain ways? We want to always just be, be the church who is having the conversation. We don't want to, I can't, hear my heart, y'all. I'm, I'm, about, I'm about to get this right in just a second. Just leave me alone. Leave me alone. I'm going to get it right in just a second. Leave me alone. Let me, me and my Brittany Mike, we, work, we, we fighting each other today. We're going to get it right. We're going to get it right. Um, but listen here. We can't be the church who every time something happens societally, we're going to stop the whole thing. It's not, I'm just be honest with you. That's not what we're going to do. PT, you going to change your sermon series? No. Mm -mm. No. Mm -mm. Are there times where we'll gather and lament and feel the heaviness and sit in the brokenness together? Yes. Will those be extemporaneous? Yes. We'll do it. And we reserve the right to do that. But don't look for us to always have a response on all the social commentary. On, we can't do it. We just, we, we, don't, we don't have the foresight. To, no, we are not going to watch the collective MSN, Fox News, CNN, and preach from that every week. That's not what we're going to do. So if you're expecting that, then you're in the wrong place. But what we are going to do is periodically these issues of justice, these issues of racialization, um, all the societal issues that would cause a collection of crazy believers not to be in the same room together, rich people, white people, black people, Hispanic people, all y'all mugs, all y'all. You know this is an anomaly. And this is hard to maintain. And so one of the reasons why we'll have periodic moments where we sit down and have conversations with each other is so that when things come up in our society that threaten to tear apart what God's church is and what it will be, we need to be ahead of it. We don't need to just be reacting to stuff. We need to keep our finger on the pulse of how my white brother and sister feeling about this, how my black brother and sister, how are all the white moms feeling, how are the black moms? We just need to, what's going on in your world? How are you experiencing the brokenness? And more importantly, so that when something, when your car get called, the single black dude, and you are tempted to feel like nobody in your church care about you, you know it's a lie because we've been walking with you. 
We've been asking you questions about your story. We want to know your story. And as you are sitting in the middle of hard stuff, we still want to pray with you and be with you. We got to be that church, y'all. And that takes a lot of work. And that takes intentionality. And so anyway, that was a sidebar commercial about justice. If you want to do some of that chopping with us, come see us. But let's talk about, let's, 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 let's exegete verse 6 and 8. He's shown you, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? to act justly. Suffice to put it like this, justice, what is it? It's just the connotation here is fairness and equity. Now, all of this has to be cased with, we told them this morning, when we talk about justice in here, we are talking about biblical justice. Any kind of justice, there must be a standard, right? There's got to be a standard, there's got to be consequences. So, hey, here's what you're supposed to do, and if you don't do it, there are consequences. If you do do it, there are consequences. Let's leave the consequences off the table. We're not talking about that right now. What we're talking about is the standard. When you come to the Avenue Community Church, the standard of justice, the standard of what is right, is not based on what your favorite politician told you. It's not based on how you grew up. It's the only infallible rule of law and practice is the Word of God. That's what we're talking about. That's what we're measuring ourselves up against. Now, this is hard because we have grown up in a society where there's been a conflation. All of us, because of the brokenness in this world, we have interpreted and twisted some of them scriptures too, and they can sometimes lean in a certain direction. But praise be to God, we all got the same word and we can counter that. But when we're talking about the standard, what is right, I'm not asking you what are the laws in India. I'm not asking you what the laws are in America because you do know the Constitution is not the word of God. You do know that, right? We abide by it out of respect for this. That's why we follow the lay and the laws of this land, Romans 13. But what is fair, what is equitable for us is all based on Scripture. That's what it means to prefer justice. What does it mean to love mercy? The word here, y'all know that word hesed? You kind of heard that word before, right? This is the grammatical construct of literally... God's covenant love and faithfulness. They really just couldn't, how do we make a linear definition? I don't know. We're just going to keep throwing this word hesed in there. It's just tough to explain, right? We just hesed. You know, one of my favorite songs, his love's not like us. He's faithful till the end. It's one of my favorite rappers. Every time you see this phrase, steadfast, loving, kindness, compassion, you need to think, oh, I bet in the Hebrew that's that word hesed. Because it is, usually. And it's often used, and more particularly used, of God's covenant love and faithfulness to his people. Very rarely used as an attribute that we have or possess. There are plenty other words in the Hebrew for compassion, mercy, and kindness. Those are usually the ones used for us. When he says hesed, he's usually up in the ante a little bit. Because nobody don't love the way that God loves. Amen, somebody. Come on, man. But he uses Hesed here. Probably because this is a quotation of God, right? What is he required of you to, to act justly, be fair, be equitable, right? But love mercy, it's Hesed. 
I want you, human being, who bears my mark, to somehow communicate the unique covenant faithfulness and, and love that I have, this, this, this special uncanny mercy towards especially lowly people who don't seem to be deserving of it, to the needy. This is the idea here in Micah 6.8. Take the covenant love and loyalty and faithfulness that is strange that I exhibit towards you, and you find a way to direct that towards the people, especially those who are on the margins, especially those who are being taken advantage of. That's what I want. But here's the strange one. So you get these two horizontal kind of things, right? I want you to be just. I want you to be fair and equitable towards people. That's a part of God's requirement. Hey, I want you to love mercy. I want you not to just give people what they deserve. God, can, man, can we just pause? You do, you, I mean, you, you realize you have to always be partial to mercy. I done been around the block and I have seen you know, these crazy courtroom scenes where all of a sudden these egregious crimes have been committed and then all of a sudden those people who have been victims or family members of victims, they say, hey, I forgive you. My faith has taught me to forgive you. And guess what? We've, I've lived long enough to see that even being rebuked, that even being a sign of kind of societal brainwashing or manipulation to overly extend forgiveness. I, bro, I don't know where you grew up. I don't know your mama name. I don't know what street. I don't know your upbringing. All I know is when God recounts his saving acts like he did in the verses 4 and 5, that's essentially all of our stories. None of us have made it to the position we have in Jesus because we earned it smart enough. We've all been rescued and redeemed, and not just rescued and redeemed. We were all hostile to God, so we've been extended mercy. So we're always partial to mercy. We're always like, man, haven't you met your daddy who grew up hard? You know what I'm saying? And maybe he moved y'all out the hood, and maybe he got a good job. But you know what? He always had a soft spot in his heart for them little hoodlum dudes. He's like, man, I was just, I was just like that. I know what it feels like to deserve something different and get something better. So when you want to do justice, biblical people, do, don't fool yourself, don't disillusion yourself to think that, oh, what God wants me to do is to clearly and solely figure out what's fair and equitable. Hmm. Wait a minute now. Because if we want to start playing by people just getting what they deserve, then we got a problem. God's people, aren't you always partial to mercy? But lastly, he says, walk humbly with your God. The idea is a directional command, helic. Come on, man, Hebrew, you better come through Hebrew too. I'm in there, baby, come on. I got about four more weeks though, you know what I'm saying? It's a command, go, walk, come, right? So the idea is there is an active moving with God. 
There's an active moving with Yahweh, where he's going. So when you think about what's my responsibility, you know, I hate this. When people preach Micah 6, 8, they, all they talk about is justice. It's about so much more than justice. Don't, don't, don't get out there, love, mercy, and compassion, and kindness, and forget the walking with your God part. That's important too. So you get the command to walk with God, to go with God, but also this word to walk with God, that is, that is a description of an intimate relationship. Let's do some biblical history. Let's do some cross-referencing. Noah walked with God. Enoch didn't die. He actually walked with God. You know what's being described here too? It's not for you to just go out and do what's right. He says, walk with me. Be with me. Get in this hip pocket. Where I go, you go. Be close enough to me that you can feel my heartbeat. Be close enough to me that my spirit can whisper. You can start to discern when evil and things are happening because you with me. You with me. Come on, y'all. So many times I think we play justice. This verse, verse 8. What we saw in the previous verses was all these exorbitant amount of, you know, religious routine and things they're doing. God was not anti the routine. He was not anti-sacrifice. Why would he have a whole book telling you how to come into my courts? Okay, stop putting that dichotomy there. That's not what it is. Because essentially God would have just said, hey, stop, stop coming to temple. Just do right. Is that what he's saying? That is not what he's saying. He said, don't use the ritual to cover up the blatant neglect of my other statutes. I don't care how many bulls you offer. If you treat people unfairly, I don't hear it. I don't receive you. I don't care how many scriptures you know, how many highlighters you use, how many times you'd have been to Sunday school. I don't care how many songs you'd have sung with Stephen Akindana on the worship team. If you are unfair, if you are unjust, I don't receive it. You think I'm lying? Yo, we'll get to it a little later. But we'll see how God will even stand against you when you are in sin. Essentially, what you are doing, Tim Johnson, circa 1998, is you are putting perfume on funk. Hey, I think the worst thing that could have ever been created, body spray. There's some stanky little human beings be coming in my house. Hey, boy, we got to go. We got to get out. We got to. All right, give me one second. No, you got to get in the shower. No, Dad, I'm straight. We be fume. We be about to die in there. Like, what is, what's going on? Listen, man, we just got ivory. Can we just pray for an ivory and a dial anointing in the room today? Come on, man. <laughs> it's all, I'm just saying. But as we draw it back in, can we, can we all agree? Can we all agree? I think we were talking as a staff. It's like, Pete, man, what, how, do we, how do we talk about justice differently? And then we start talking about ideas of perfection. Uh, let me just, I didn't get a chance to share in the uh, justice talk. I will say this. There is no expectation for perfection in this room. And if you know that, you know, you all raise your hand. I'm just a sinner saved by grace. 
So we, expect, we, we almost expect that internally, but we kind of don't expect that socially. Like there's going to be times where because of your own greed and your own nastiness in your heart, you will take from other people. There's going to be times where you will be in authority and you will abuse that authority. There's going to be times where you're going to be the one in charge, listen at me, and people will hate the day that they got assigned to you. Now, what's the catch, PT? Not that we would be perfect, Avenue, but that we would be repentant. The problem with Israel wasn't the fact that they weren't doing it perfectly, is that they would never repent. They would never turn. They get called out. They would start creating different thought theology that would assume them from being guilty. They start dodging the accountability. Nobody's asking you to be perfect, but when you find out that you're paying somebody lower than what they would justifiably make, why don't you correct it? Why don't you just say, I'm sorry? Repent about face and move on and walk humbly with our God. So Nadia read the summation of Israel's guilt and pronounced punishment. I'll let you read it because we're making good headway. But the idea here in verse 10, he says, am I to forget the wickedness, you know? Shall I acquit you because you have someone with dishonest scales? The idea here is just this. It's like, man, listen, I love y'all. Y'all my people. But should I just look past your sin because you're my people? What would happen then? Then that would make God unjust. Now he's an accomplice to our crimes. And if God is an accomplice to our crimes, if he's unjust, then we don't, we'll never have a perfect, sinless, spotless sacrifice for our sin. It just can't work that way. God can't look past sin. Put your eyes on me. Let me feel you. God can't look past sin. It would make him unjust. But you see here the result of their sin. You see all those personal pronouns in there. Your, your rich people are violent. Your inhabitants are liars. Verse 13, therefore I've begun to destroy you, to ruin you. Why? Why is God ruining his own people? Because, you read it with me, because of your sins. Let me just tell you, even people who've been saved by grace, even people who are under the Holy Spirit, like I told you before, be careful. God will still, there is still blessings for obedience. There is still consequences for unrighteousness. It is what it is. You can be forgiven, but somebody still got to pay the consequences for your nasty attitude. Your lust still wounds people. Yeah, bro, you forgiven, but you're, you're, the, the sexual immorality, somebody's still paying the price for that. It's just what it is. And you need to know this, when there is no repentance sin, God will stand against you, even if it's his own people. 1 Peter 3, you remember that? Husband, treat your wives with respect, lest you come to me in prayer, in the prayer closet, speaking in tongues, shunda bashamada shamada, Lord bless it. And, and he's like, man, I ain't hearing none of that mess. You treat your wife like junk. It's the same principle. You got these little nasty hands, unrepentant hands, don't want to acknowledge that you're actually wrong and that you're treating people unfairly, and then you expect to have divine communication. It don't work like that, y'all. 
1 Thessalonians, Ephesians 4. Remember these scriptures talking about grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit. You do know that, yes, you are forgiven, but you can stop that flow of peace and power that's trying to get to you because of your willful rebellion against God and His Spirit. Hey, don't do that. It's okay. Hey, don't say that. It's okay. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm free in Jesus. Uh, uh, uh. That's what Romans 6 was about. Are you going to use the grace of God to just allow you to keep willfully doing what you want to do? No. That's what they're doing. And God says we're not doing that. Your sin has consequences. In the last verses in chapter 7, this is Micah's just reflection on the whole ordeal. The genre, we would call it a dirge. It's like a lament song. It's a funeral song. As Micah sits and he reflects on all of the things that are happening, he says, what misery is mine? I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat, none of early figs that I crave. The faithful have been swept from the land. Not one upright person remains. Everyone lies in wait to shed blood. They hunt each other with nets. Both hands are skilled in doing evil. Come on, man. Where the basketball players at? Who got a left hand in here? You know what I'm saying? Push him left. He ain't got a left hand. You know, push him right. All right, Bob, you know what I'm talking about. But look at this. Look at this. Isn't this crazy? He said, the scripture says, both your hands skilled at doing evil. That's how wild it is. It don't, you so comfortable at doing evil, it don't matter what situation. You can flourish and find a way to do it. The ruler demands gifts. The judge accepts bribes. The powerful dictate what they desire. They all conspire together. The best of them is like a briar. The most upright, worse than a thorn hedge. The day God visits you has come. The day your watchmen sound the alarm now is the time of your confusion. Do not trust the neighbor. Put no confidence in a friend. Even with the woman who lies in your embrace, guard the words of your lip. For a son dishonors his father. A daughter rises up against her mother. A daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the members of his own household. As Micah sits grieving as he experiences injustice, as he's witnessing injustice, as he knows and has to mete out the punishment of injustice, he's grieving. And he goes on to describe his society as this violent place filled with abuse of power all over. Revisiting chapters 2 and 3, these men who just take bribes, all they want is greed. No matter where they get the profitable gain from. This is so crazy. He said, evil is so rampant that you should be suspicious of everyone. As he goes down and he kind of walks through the biological, you know, relationships of the nuclear family that hold our societies together, he says, you can't trust them. He says, essentially, you're going to be enemies with everyone. Even the woman who lies in your embrace, you better watch your words because your society is so filled with greed and selfishness that she might even use that against you. That's how crazy it has gotten. Everybody's out for themselves. This reminds me of judges, that common refrain, everybody doing what was right in their own eyes. Genesis 6 and 5, every, everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil when God had to judge the earth and send the flood. What's happening in Micah is not that people are just morally bad people. What's happening in Micah, the reason why God's people find themselves in this predicament 
it is the evidence and result that they are not trusting and relying on God alone. Just pause. I know y'all got sociology degrees, you got anthropology degrees, you got all the summa lum kadi boom jadi boom bodies, you, you up in there. You read all the journals, you read all the op-eds, you up on all the, the podcasts and the modern research. I know that. I, I know that. And I know that there are sometimes scientific evidence for some of the things that you believe that you're witnessing. But for us as Christians, why is our society the way that it is? Why is Micah's society the way that it is? It's the evidence and result that God is not our number one. That's what it is. Do you believe that, Christian? Do you believe that? I just, I just, I'm just asking. Do you still believe that? I'm going to tell you, you got choices that you have to make. As you sit in a world marred with injustice, you have choices to make. I'm not making light of this. Our neighborhood kind of just, you know, we've been experiencing some visitors. Amen. And now, uh, you know, it's kind of made the neighborhood we've been on, you know, just okay. Everybody just a little white pot. And, you know, people just offering advice and different strategies. Well, I got the Blink XX3500, and you know what I'm saying? It has a radar scan, and it sees people walking two miles away. You know, we got all kind of crazy things happening on our little chat. But, you know, some people offer, offering certain services. Hey, man, well, if y'all want me to teach you this, and this is jujitsu, and you know what I'm saying? Okay, all right. So I'm just saying, I'm not making light of it. I'm just, I am saying you have choices to make. As you sit in a world that you know you are going to constantly be aware of the brokenness and sometimes feel that brokenness more heavy than others. Amen, somebody. It's like, whoa. Don't y'all have those seasons where you're like, man, what is going on? You just feel it heavier at times than others. You have choices to make. And maybe you choo do choose to go get you a situation. As my homeboy would say, you walk in my yard, and you hear that crackle, it ain't a branch. Okay then, you better think about it. And guess what? If that's what you want to do, that's your prerogative. Some of y'all, you know, you're going to start getting with Evan Warder. He'll teach y'all some, you know, Miss Martial Arts and stuff like this. You know what I'm saying? I don't, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know? Evan? No? No, Evan said no, I didn't do that. And can I tell you, there... Nobody in here is judging you for your secondary and tertiary choices. But as your pastor, I'm going to always be calling you to your primary choice, which is what I see Micah get to in Micah 7. Hey, but as for me, come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. He said, I see it, I feel it, then my people, then my cousins, and when they get sent off to exile, I'm going to be hurt by it too. I'm going to be unfairly punished by it. But as for me, I watch in hope for the Lord. I wait for God, whose Savior, my Savior, my God will hear me. 
And just in case you think this is, oh, that's just Micah, look at the stark similarities in Jeremiah in Lamentations. Our favorite verse, right? Uh, verse 3 and 22, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. But I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope in him, the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It's a whole nother prophet at a whole nother time. And what is their number one thing they're holding on to in the middle of an unjust society? I'm going to wait for my God. Do you know that this is the common refrain of all of Christianity? This idea of God being our salvation. Not looking to a new ruler, not putting my eggs in a new political platform, not waiting on society to reform itself. I'm waiting on my God. I'm waiting on my God. There's a scripture in Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion, this chief cornerstone, and ideally I'm paraphrasing, but those who put their hope in it will not be put to shame. And so crazy, when you do a little bit of research, you see that cross-reference. It appears so many times. It's in Romans, it's in 1 Peter, some variation of essentially those who put their hope in Yahweh will not be put it to shame. God is our salvation. And let me just help some of y'all out. See, some of us have been forced to reckon with it. Some of us, you know, hey. Some of us have been forced to see God as our salvation, not just in a soteriological sense, but in a comprehensive sense. And some of you need to catch up. See, some of you come to know Jesus as the Savior, the propitiation for sins. I've sinned against God. I need saving. I need his help, right? And that's great. You need to know that. But until you also know that he is your only salvation in all of life, when your money get funny, when the kids start acting up, when you need mind regulation, when you need healing in your body, he's still your savior. Do you know that that is a distinctly Christian refrain? Nobody else. What's the song Carver song? My what? Give it to me. My lifter. Do you realize nobody else on the face of this planet says that, y'all? Nobody. What makes you an unbeliever is you look to other things for your salvation. What makes you distinctly a Christian is that you look to him alone. Him alone. And beside him, there is no close second. Yo, God is my Savior. What's that mean? I don't know. Here's just a couple things I was thinking about. He's the only solution to my personal sin. Are you burdened by your personal sin, your sin addictions? Are you trying to get free? Do you know that the, the path to freedom is through God your Savior? 
Are you burdened by a sinful society? Do you believe that the only way this sinful society gets fixed is by God your Savior? Do you believe that he's the only one who can rescue you and deliver you? Do you believe that he's the only one who can keep you in the midst of this society? Do you believe that just you moving several hours away to suburban remote locations still won't keep you away from human brokenness? Yes, I know you're tempted to pack up and move when you see things, but do you do realize, though? But you do realize that can't solve human sin. If all the good people got together on one island, moved north of Antarctica, sin would follow them because it's in them. You believe that Yahweh can hear your prayers. Verse 7 is literally the setup for the Gospels. He says, I'm going to wait for my God. My God hears my prayers. My God is my Savior. He's saying, somebody's coming. I'm going to sit on this stoop. I'm going to wait for my daddy. Somebody is coming. Y'all realize that somebody did come? That Jesus came, and by living and dying and rising, he was the answer to those cries. And we wait on him to come again. Our hope is in him coming again. Because I can't get Michael 4 and 5 out of my mind. That I know that by putting my hope in Jesus, what he's done for me as being my savior from the personal penalty for my personal sins is also he's going to be the one who delivers to me a new world, the one I want to live in, the just society that we all want to be a part of. We get to live in that one day only by waiting on our savior. We got a great big God, yo. I think as you, what we have to wrestle with is, is he still worth waiting on? You know what I'm saying? I, um, you know how sometimes I be certain places, Sundays. Oh, Gil, this perfect example. Gil, you know, had the food catered for vision breakfast stuff, you know, lunch. And sometimes she'll throw out some healthy options and they be great. But Sundays are like my cheat days. I don't be trying to eat healthy. <laughs> trying to. I just need as much grease as we can pretty much carve up. Come on. Salt, grease, butter, sugar. That's the menu for Sundays for Timothy. So Gil throw the healthy options out there. I'm like, I'm on wait. But you only wait when you think and you are assured that something better is coming. Is your God good enough in the middle of a broken society to wait on? 